God, we come before you this morning with great expectation. Lord, we come in here this morning, and or there are some in this room who are burdened, some this morning who are going through trials, who are wrestling with doubt, wrestling with temptation. God, some who come in here with the pressures of the world upon their soul, on, on their shoulders, and God, we need to hear from you today. God, we need to be encouraged. We need to be convicted. We need to be challenged. And yet most importantly, God, we need to see Jesus lifted high, for he is who our souls thirst for. So God, would you work freely through your word today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, growing up, I went to a church in which every single week there was a certain kind of picture on the wall that you saw every single week that you went uh, into the sanctuary. This picture is based off Psalm 42. It looks something like this. I know it's not um, exactly a picture you can make out of, but this picture is a deer who is taking a drink of water from a stream. I remember seeing this picture every single week, and as you can notice, it's just this beautiful scenery with flowers, and the light from the sun is just kind of hitting the deer just perfectly. It looks like a scene that's so calm and, and peaceful. And I remember looking at this picture, you know, before going into the sanctuary every single week growing up, and I remember being frustrated watching this picture really for two reasons. Number one, uh, my life rarely looked and felt like that picture, and maybe you can relate to that. But number two, um, that painting is not really what is being depicted in Psalm 42. And Psalm 42 is not about a calm, peaceful experience of a deer who is nonchalantly getting a drink of water from this stream. But what this psalm is trying to describe is a man who is desperate after God. This psalm is about a man who is expressing a deep longing for God, a a man who's even lamenting about how his current condition is not how it should be. This is a man who wants more of God in his life. I love this psalm because the psalm is so raw. It's uh, so honest and transparent. It is uh, so much of where most of us live our lives day in and day out. Throughout the sermon series, we've uh, looked at this idea of, of desperation, being desperate for God from uh, different angles. At the first week, we saw in Genesis chapter 32, Jacob uh, wrestling with God, and we learned that uh, being desperate for God is actually a gift that we should pursue and that we should go after with all that we are. We've also seen how uh, there are different barriers in our lives, in our hearts, that keep us from hungering after God the way that we should. And one of the main barriers is self-sufficiency. It's pride that keeps us from being desperate from God. We've also looked at the important ingredient of desperation, which is humility. That desperation for God grows in the soil uh, of humility. And then we've also seen uh, the importance of prayer. Even last week, that prayer is really the voice of desperation. And so this morning, as we uh, close out this important sermon series, we're going to look at Psalm 42, and we're going to get a picture of what it looks like to actually be desperate for God. This psalm is not necessarily about how to cultivate desperation in your life, although you can bring out some principles about that in this psalm. But this psalm is really about desperation in action. This psalm helps us to answer the question, 
how do I know if I am being desperate for God? What does that even look like? And so there's four things that I want to point out to us about this psalm that shows us what it looks like to being desperate for God. Okay, so here's number one. Being desperate for God means that you have a spiritual thirst for God. You have a spiritual thirst for God. This psalmist uses some powerful imagery as it relates to water all throughout this psalm to both express his need for God and to kind of describe his desperate situation. He begins this psalm with maybe one of the most memorable images throughout the psalms, a a deer who is panting uh, for water. Some believe that the psalmist here is actually David himself, that he's towards the end of his life, that David at this point in time in his life is being hunted and chased down by one of his sons, Absalom, that Absalom wanted the throne, he wanted the power, he wanted to be king, and so he's chasing after David. Uh, David has been driven out of Jerusalem uh, some 150 miles away. So he is far from the temple of God where God's presence was. He's far from the people of God. He's most likely on the the backside of the Jordan desert, and he is longing for God. David is being hunted for his life, and it's in this moment, this season, which he pens this incredible psalm. And so I don't want to offend that, that painting, but... This psalm is not creating an image of a calm, peaceful experience. This psalm is is really about a man who's being hunted, a man who is in a desperate situation. So David is using this imagery of of a deer who's panting for water, being hunted day and night, who is desperate just to stay alive, and he's on the verge of desperation. I don't know if you can relate to, to David this morning. Obviously, you're probably not being hunted for your life, but Maybe you're being hunted by something else in your life today. Maybe you're being hunted by the voice of shame that's trying to remind you of your mistakes in your past and you feel like you're being chased down, being reminded of what you've done in your life. Maybe you can relate to David of being hunted and chased down by that voice that that says you should be a better spouse, you should be a better parent, you should be a better employee or friend. Maybe this morning you feel hunted and chased down by different temptations in your life. Maybe you can relate to David here, who in this moment is being chased down, and he writes that he feels like this deer who's being hunted day and night, who is thirsty for water. And he says, just as a a deer is thirsting for water, so my soul thirsts for God, the living God. He says, when can I see God? When can I see him face to face? This is a man who is expressing longing for God. His soul is aching for God. He is desperate for God and his presence. You know, what makes this psalm so beautiful, what makes this picture so powerful and important for us this morning is that David is expressing a longing, not necessarily for his circumstances to be changed, not necessarily for God to remove his enemies, but David is thirsty for God himself. Look, this should challenge us this morning because so often we, we sometimes desire God to fix our condition and to fix our situations sometimes more than what we desire of God himself. That we want whatever is chasing us to go away sometimes more than we want the presence of God in our lives. And that being thirsty for God, 
not just the things of God, is one of the ways that you can tell that you are actually desperate for God. That being thirsty for God implies that you've tasted and that you've seen that, that the Lord is good, right? Like we typically don't hunger and thirst for things that we haven't experienced before. Like if you've gone, you know, several hours without water, or if you've gone uh, a period of time without having a particular kind of food that you enjoy, you tend to crave and you thirst and you hunger for whatever it is because you've already tasted it. You know that it's going to satisfy you. And for many of you, you don't hunger for a cheesy gordita crunch from Taco Bell because you haven't tasted it before, right? Look, it's, it's hard to be thirsty for God if you've never been satisfied with God before. A part of what it means to, to being a Christian is that God gives you these new and sanctified longings for the things of God. He gives you a, a thirstiness for God himself. A part of what it means to being a Christian is that you've not just been convinced intellectually or, or factually about the fact that Jesus died in your place but you've been stunned, you've been wowed, and your affections and your desires have been changed because you're in awe of the fact that God died in your place, that God gives you a a thirstiness uh, for him. Listen to how John Piper emphasizes the reality of a spiritual thirstiness and desire. He, He says this, he says, minimizing the importance of transformed feelings makes Christian conversion less supernatural and less radical, that it is humanly manageable to make decisions of the will of Christ, that no supernatural power is required to pray prayers, sign cards, walk aisles, or even stop sleeping around. Those are good. They just don't prove that anything spiritual has happened. Christian conversion, on the other hand, is a supernatural, radical thing, that the heart is changed. And the evidence is not just new decisions, but new affections and new feelings. What Piper is is talking about here is that when you get converted, when you become a Christian, your intellectual understanding of how to live life is not the only thing that is altered, but you actually have new affections and new desires, and you start to thirst for the things of God. Look at what Jesus says in John chapter 7. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What Jesus is saying here is that everyone thirsts. Everyone craves something. And the reality of what Jesus is saying here is that if you believe in Jesus and you come to Jesus and you drink him, you will be satisfied only if you believe that Jesus is the only one that can quench your thirstiness. Look, you might be here this morning and you may not be uh, thirsting after God the way that you should, and there might be two reasons for that. That number one, it might be because you're not truly a Christian yet. You might have an intellectual understanding of the fact that Jesus died for you on the cross, and yet the Spirit of God has not regenerated you yet in giving you new desires and new longings for Him. The second reason why you may not be thirsty for God is because you might be trying to quench your thirst for Jesus with all kinds of other things besides Jesus. 
Maybe it's your career or money or relationships or family or body image or whatever it might be. And you may not know it, but trying to quench that spiritual thirst for things outside of Jesus is like trying to drink a gallon of milk after running a five-mile run in the heat of summer. Like your, your soul is craving Jesus, and you may not know it, but your longings for him need to be funneled towards the person and the work of Jesus, and you will not be satisfied until that happens. So being thirsty is about coming to the well of the living water and drinking and drinking deeply, drinking consistently, and the more that you drink, the more thirsty that you actually become. The person that is desperate for God understands that their, their, their thirst can only be quenched by Jesus. Well, that's not the only thing that we see in this psalm about being desperate for God. The second thing that we see here that uh, can help us know if you're desperate for God is if the famine uh, bothers you. If the famine bothers you. We see another uh, play on the imagery of water here as David the psalmist starts to describe his condition and how uh, he's actually doing. In verse 3, he says that his tears have been his food day and night. I thought that was interesting. Like after verses 1 and 2, after he cries out for God, he's thirsty for God. And yet the only response he's getting here is the saltiness of his own tears. He wants to be satiated with the presence of God, and yet he's forced to feast upon his own sorrow and despair. Look, what do you do when you are crying out for more of God, and yet he seems so far away? What happens when when you want to be desperate for him, but it just seems like he's nowhere to be found? Well, notice what the psalmist does here. David, what he does throughout the psalm is he wrestles with God in prayer. David is not content with the famine. This is not acceptable for him. He's desperate for God. And so he begins to wrestle with God in prayer. Look at verse 9. He's bothered by this. And he says to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? He's saying, God, where did you go? He says uh, in verse 9, why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Look, this is not okay for David, who is desperate for God. He wants more of God, and yet God seems so far away. Like desperate people are praying people. The voice of desperation is, is prayer. It's not settling for milk when, when you're dehydrated. You, you want more of the living God. Look, this should remind us of Jacob back in Genesis 32 when we looked at that just a few weeks ago. Jacob wrestling with God. God uh, wrestling with him all night gets to that point where he's like, you got to let me go, Jacob. And he goes, no, I'm not going to be done wrestling with you until you bless me. Remember, that blessing was the promise of God's, of God's presence with him. Look, in the same way, David is, is not willing to walk away from God without crying out to him to give him more of himself. This reminds me, I came across a, a prayer by A.W. Tozer a while ago, and he talks about this wrestling in his prayer. He says, Oh God, I have tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. Oh God, the triune God, I want to want thee. 
I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me thy glory, I pray thee, so that I may know thee indeed. Look, one way that you know that you are desperate for God is if the famine bothers you to the point where it drives you to wrestling with God in prayer so that you pray prayers like this. Say, God, I want to want more of you. I want to be thirsty for you more. I know that you satisfy, but where I'm at is not enough for me. I'm not content with with this condition of, of where you are in my life. Look, if I could just press on that just a little bit more, I I think one of our biggest obstacles to being desperate for God is that so often we settle for spiritual complacency. Like we have those moments and those seasons in which we're not desiring God the way that we should, and yet it doesn't bother us the way that it should. That spiritual mediocrity it has a tendency just to describe so many of our relationships with God. And instead of that driving us to the presence of God, we just settle. And maybe we can relate to Psalm 42, but for some of us, we've, we've taken out verse 9 from our Bibles. We're not wrestling as much as we should. We say things like, well, maybe I'm not that kind of Christian. Maybe I'm not wired that way to to being that desperate for God kind of believer. Maybe I'm not that spiritual. Or maybe maybe we're just too consumed with the busyness of life, with career and relationships and family, that we don't even know the condition of our hearts. Maybe we don't even know that the famine is, is basically our normal experience in the Christian life. Therefore, we can't cry out for more of God. Like David knew the climate of his condition and it bothered him. He wanted more of God in his life. I heard another pastor put it this way. He said that God will only give you as much of himself as you desire. That God is there, he's available, he's wanting you to want him, wanting you to pursue him, and he has arms open wide waiting for you to taste and see that he is good. Look, don't allow the famine, don't allow pain and sorrow to drive you away from the presence of God. Use that to press into the reality of who God is in your life. So the famine should bother you. Number three, the third thing that we see in this psalm of, of a person who is desperate for God is by regularly rehearsing God's faithfulness in your life. It's recalling how God has been faithful to you, how God has been faithful in the past. And look, this spiritual discipline is like adding gasoline to a fire as it relates to desiring God and to increasing your passion for him. Look at verse four. David says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. What, what, what things is David remembering? Well, he answers that in what he says next. He says, he remembers how he would go with the throng or, or a, a group of people and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Look, what, what is David referring to here in verse 4 of what he's remembering? Well, David is referring to those moments in which he would gather with God's people at the temple in the presence of God, and he would experience the incomparable joy of corporate worship. 
Those moments in which he would, with God's people, recall and remember how God has been faithful to his people. He talks about the the multitude-keeping festival. This festival that he's talking about is referring to these religious high points in the calendar, like the, the Passover and Pentecost and the booths, when God's people would just pour into the temple, would pour into the sanctuary, and they would just, just cry out to God and thank him for how faithful he has been to them. David's not recalling those uh, kind of weekly gatherings with his people. David is recalling those moments when God felt most tangible when God felt most close to him, when, when his heart was filled with the presence of God. Those moments when, when he would recall how close God has been, how faithful he has been in his life. Like, this is a struggle for us. Like, I, I confessed this a few weeks ago. This is, this is hard for me to do. Like, I, I feel like I'm such a forward-thinking person. I'm always on to the next thing. Can't you relate to that? Like, what's the next thing on my to-do list? What's my next meeting, the next activity, the next experience that I feel so often just to stop and to recall how God has been faithful in my life? I I fail to just recall all the times that God has been so good to me as a way to, to kind of create more desire for him. That's what David's doing here. He's actually recalling the moments when God felt so close to him and so faithful as a way to create more desire for him. He's basically recalling, saying, I want more of that. You did it back then. Do it again today. It reminds me every year, Lindsay and I, we, um, we watch our wedding day. Uh, we had it recorded, and so every anniversary, we watch the whole wedding day. And it's such a great time just to stop and, and to reflect on how good God has been in our own marriage over the years, how faithful he's been. It's also a really fun time to look at. It wasn't that long ago, but thinking, man, I can't believe I had my hair like that. I can't believe that suit was actually in style. What, was it ever in style? I don't even know. But it actually captures some of my uh, dance moves on there. So if you're uh, wanting to see and, and get a, a, good, a good laugh out of that, you can watch it with us sometime. But as we watch that, that video and we just see our wedding day, you know, several years ago, we just kind of reflect on how good God has been in our lives. Like, I find my own desires for God start to grow and start to be enlarged. When I stop and remember all that God has done in and through our marriage, I stop asking God to fix this and to do this, and my heart just becomes thankful for all that he's already done. And that, I don't know, that creates this desire for him, this satisfaction in him, because he's been so much more faithful than what I deserve. Like desire for God grows when you anchor your hope in the faithfulness of God. Look, we see this all throughout scripture. We see uh, individuals who, who want to remember and recall the faithfulness of God as a way to kind of spur on faithfulness to him in the present. I, I think of 1 Samuel chapter 7. You have the, the prophet uh, Samuel, who takes this stone and he names it Ebenezer as a way to, to get the people of God to remember God's faithfulness. And if you remember that story, right before that, God really had to show up because Samuel, as the prophet of God, he was calling God's people to pursue the face of God out of desperation. He kind of rallied God's people to pray, to cry out to him, to repent of their sins. And as they're doing that, the Philistines, their enemies, thought it'd be a good opportunity to attack them. 
And so the, the Israelites are crying out to God, and they're seeing the Philistines start to get into position to attack them, and they start to get a little bit nervous. This would actually be a good sermon in and of itself, but they're, they're starting to be distracted by their enemy. And Samuel's like, no, 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 don't be distracted. Keep praying. Keep pouring out your heart to God. Keep being desperate for him. And then God miraculously sends confusion over the Philistines, if you remember the story, and kind of thunders them in defeat. And the Israelites, the people of God, were just in awe of him, that God actually showed up in their presence to defend them against the Philistines. And it was in that moment that Samuel declares, till now the Lord has helped us. Till now the Lord has helped us. In other words, God has been faithful in the past, He was faithful here in the present, and he will be faithful to us in the future. And he sets up this stone and calls it Ebenezer as a way to remember and recall God's faithfulness. Look, this morning, do you have an Ebenezer in your life? Do you have something that you have uh, maybe a regular rhythm of recalling God's faithfulness? Uh, A moment or a place that you go to or a certain time of, uh, of, of the week where you just remember how God was so good to you in that particular season of your life? how God was faithful to you in a certain trial. Look, it's so important to use and to recall God's faithfulness to inflame desire for him. Look, parents and and grandparents, I, I can't tell you how important it is for you to talk about how God has been faithful to you, to your children and to your grandchildren. That is one of the ways that you live out Psalm 145.4 that says one generation will commend God's works to another that you need to be talking about your own Ebenezer moments, those times in which God was faithful and God was good to you. You need to talk about that with your children and your grandchildren. That's one way that you will pass the baton of faith from one generation to the next. Just enjoy bragging about God. It's not boring. The Spirit of God will use that in the lives of your children and, and grandchildren. It's so important for us to do that. We see David here, he says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. That those that are desperate for God, they find themselves basking in the glory of God's faithfulness, and they say, I want more of that in my life. Well, the fourth and the last way that this psalm helps us to know if we're desperate for God is by talking to yourself, preaching to yourself, if you will. I love verse 5. Verse 5 kind of comes out of nowhere almost. David says, soul, why are you cast down? Why are you in turmoil? And if you're reading this for the first time, you're like, why is this guy talking to himself? Like, has he, has he lost his mind? And yet, what we learn here is an important aspect of what it means to be desperate for God. That you talk to yourself, you preach to yourself. Like, the reason why this is so important is because of what Paul Tripp has said that no one is more influential in your life than you are. The reason for that is because no one talks to you more than you do, right? Like your circumstances do not have the kind of influence over your life like you do. Your loved one doesn't even have the influence like you do. Future opportunities don't. You have the most influence over your life because you and I, we are constantly talking to ourselves, and this psalmist here is utilizing this important skill and really art of preaching a gospel-centered message over his soul. Look, there are all kinds of, of ways that we talk to ourselves that are, 
that are unhelpful and even dangerous, right? There's, there's one way of positive self-talk where we say to ourselves, man, you are amazing. You can accomplish anything. Like, there's no one greater than you, right? That's kind of the theme of our, of our culture. You are the unique snowflake, right? And that can, that can lead you into this sense of entitlement. Like, I deserve this. I demand that. And that's so dangerous to bring that into your relationship with God. That would be a barrier from being desperate for God. And yet sometimes we swing the pendulum on the other side and we have this negative self-talk that I'm the worst, that you start recalling all of your failures and all of your sins, and, and that can so easily lead you into despair. And yet what David does here, and what I'll call a gospel self-talk, is by reminding yourself of the truth of who you are in Jesus. That as Tim Keller says, that the, the, the reality of the gospel is that you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared imagine. And yet at the same time, in Christ, you are more loved and accepted than you could ever dream. The same time. And it's taking the reality of that and reminding yourself of who you are in Christ, that you're putting off the lies of the enemy and you're putting on the truth of Scripture. Martin Lloyd-Jones, this is kind of a lengthy quote here, but he talks about the art of preaching to yourself. He says this, he says, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those moments that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they are talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment, Psalm 42, was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asked. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. That the main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, what he is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. Look, this is really what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to grow as a Christian, is to know how to handle yourself. And look, one of the first things to do in in preaching to yourself is by first questioning the voices that are going on in your life, and even questioning your emotions. We get all kinds of false gospels being preached over our soul from from the culture, from from our enemy, even from our own flesh. These false gospels that want to fill our heart with doubt and worry and anxiety and lust and shame and guilt. And yet what we need to do, the, the first step, is doing exactly what David did. Question those things. Question your emotions. Question these false gospels. He says, so why are you so downcast? He calls them out. Look, when, when was the last time you actually questioned the emotions that were going on in your hearts? When was the last time you talked to the fear that's living in your heart, saying, fear, what are you doing in my life? Why are you so fearful? Are you greater than the promises of God? 
When was the last time you, you called out and you talked to the anxiety that's in your life? Anxiety, anxious, anxiousness, what, what are you doing in there? You don't belong in my life. I'm a son or a daughter of the king of kings. So why are you envisioning a future without God again? Look, we need to get in the habit of questioning what is going on in our lives and not being enslaved to what other feeling and emotion comes in there. Look, I've learned that for most people, their emotions are the main revelation of God in their lives instead of the truth of what God has said in Scripture. Look, I'm going to say this as much as I can, but your feelings are real. They just cannot be authoritative in your life. You cannot allow them to dictate how it is that you live out your relationship with the Lord. Look, by first questioning your emotions, questioning these false narratives in your life, you're actually loosening the grip that those things have around your hearts. You're actually opening your heart up to now uh, receiving truth, rehearsing the truth of the gospel. You're making room. You're clearing out the junk in your heart so that desperation for God can come flooding in. Like one of our difficulties in being desperate for God is our hearts are overcrowded. There's no space for desire for God, thirst for God to come in there because there's so much worry in there. There's so much anxiety. There's so much lust. There's so much bitterness. Look, questioning those things and clearing them out, disarming them, is a way to make room for gospel truth to be centered in your hearts. Look, that's what David does here. Soul, why are you so downcast? And then what does he say? He says, hope in God. Starts preaching truth to him. Why can he hope in God? Because God is the everlasting God. God stays true to his promises. And I love this, this word hope in, in the Hebrew. It, it actually means to wait expectantly for God. Like, isn't that the posture of a heart who is desperate for God, it is waiting expectantly to, for God to be who he says he will be. It's opening your soul up for God to come through for you, for God to meet you exactly where you are. And David says, for I shall again praise him. And that really is the result of a heart that is desperate for God. It is praise and it is worship for him. So look, the more that we I think model our interactions with God out of Psalm 42, the more that we'll find being desperate for God a reality in our lives. And so look, whether you find yourself in a crisis of turmoil or maybe just a season of ease, when you start praying prayers like Psalm 42 for, for God to give you a thirstiness for him, for God to give you a craving for him like never before, God will meet you exactly where you are in that prayer. And he will begin growing that dependency and that desperation for him. Let's pray together. Oh God, as we close out this morning, really close out this sermon series, Lord, we're so thankful for all the things that you've shown us. God, you have shown us, Lord, the, the reality of our pride in our hearts. God, you've shown us how easy it is for us to trust in ourselves instead of being dependent upon you. God, how sneaky self-sufficiency is. God, thank you for this psalm that shows us the way, that shows us what desperation for you actually looks like. And God, we want to be a church that's desperate for you. God, we don't want to settle for complacency. 
God, we don't want to settle for trusting in our own selves, but Lord, we want to be on our face and be on our knees before you, the living God, because you, we know that you will satisfy. So God, we want to keep coming to the well of living water because there is Jesus. And that is who our souls actually thirst for. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.